Morning, friends. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. We're going to Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at the second half of 19 and pick up right where we left off last week. I'm glad you're here as we enter the last week of Jesus' life. From now till Easter, we're going to be looking at the last seven days. Luke records this for us from chapters 19 through 26, concluding in his resurrection. It's like the whole story has been climaxing to this moment. Much of the Gospels have been anticipating the last week of Jesus' life. The last week is like the most important thing of what Jesus accomplishes. So there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are four historical accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All the things that he did, he taught, things he said, his crucifixion, his burial, and resurrection. In those four books, there are 89 chapters. Only four of those chapters speak about Jesus' life in the first 30 years, which leaves 84 chapters, or 85 chapters, that speak about the remaining three years of his ministry. Because it's about what Jesus Christ did in his ministry as he revealed himself to be the Messiah, the promised one sent by God. Of those chapters, 24 of them are all about the final week of Jesus' life. 13 of them are about the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And so the whole story is pushing to this moment, the last week, the final hours of what Christ came to accomplish. And we're going to look at those final days from now until Easter because it's mission critical to understand what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come on mission for? And we're going to see today that he is here to accomplish one word, peace. Peace. How would you rate your life if it was a scale of 1 to 10 of how peaceful it is right now? Like absence of conflict, presence of harmony, tranquility, enjoyment, bliss. How would you rate your relationships with your spouse, family, others? How about the world that you live in? Social scientists tell us that for the last five years, we have probably lived in the least peaceful years in the last couple decades of the amount of conflicts, not only inside the communities that are local, but nationally and now globally. You can just see the news every single day arising a new conflict. It's like, where's the peace? The world longs for peace. We talk about peace all the time. We want peace of mind. We want inner peace. We want world peace. There are bumper stickers and slogans talking about the peace that people desire to live in harmony with one another. And it seems like no one has any idea of how to get it. Jesus is on mission to bring peace to the world. A peace that only he can bring. A peace that will radically change the way we experience life if we would embrace him. And this has been the mission. This is why he has to get to Jerusalem is in Jerusalem is where he'll be crucified, put to death, three days later, rise from the dead to accomplish peace. And it seems like Jesus is the only one who knows what's going on. Every time he tells the disciples what's up, they're kind of confused. They don't really want to ask him too many questions. But he's been telling them, this is the mission. I must go to Jerusalem. And he knows what waits for him in Jerusalem. 
For the last 10 chapters, here's Luke chapter 9, verse 22. He, he told his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. You see, Jesus didn't get to Jerusalem thinking he was going to have a welcoming party, make him king, only to find out they're going to crucify him. No, this has been the plan all along. This is the mission, is that I'm going to Jerusalem, and there, wicked men are going to hand me over to be crucified. I'll be put to death, and on the third day, I will rise. And so he has been on mission to Jerusalem since chapter 9. This is 951. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. We saw that back in chapter 9. This is his movement. He's been talking and preaching around Galilee and Capernaum. And now his face turns towards Jerusalem and it's mission time. I'm going to Jerusalem to accomplish all that has been written about me by the prophets. Chapter 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. That's just a little footnote that Luke wants you to know. The mission is moving Towards Jerusalem. Chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Everything Jesus does in Jerusalem, he does according to the foreknowledge and the plan and purposes of God. Nothing is a mistake. And Jesus is driving the plan forward. Then we see in Luke 19 today, in 28, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And then in 1941, he's standing on the Mount of Olives, looking at the city. And when he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. He's arrived like just ready to walk through the gates into the city for the final seven days to accomplish the mission. And he's brought up to the Mount of Olives and he sees the city and its inhabitants and he weeps. He weeps because he's the only one that really understands what's going on. So I'm gonna show it to you. What breaks the heart of Jesus? Let's look at it today. So Luke chapter 19. This is the, the triumphal entry of Jesus. We'll read it, but we'll look more at the triumphal entry in a few weeks on Palm Sunday. But starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. But when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples... Remember, he's been coming from Jericho, which is down below sea level, and he's going up to Jerusalem, which is high. So he's coming up from Jericho to Jerusalem, and on the way, there's Mount Olives. And right before you get to the Mount of Olives, on the east side is where you have Bethphage and Bethany, two cities. He spent a lot of time in those two cities. Bethany was the city where he hung out with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then you have the Mount of Olives where he's standing on, and then you have the Kindred Valley, and then Jerusalem. And so he's at this high point, looking at the city, making his entry into the town. And he said, 
He sent two of his disciples, verse 30, go into the village in front of you where, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent ahead or went away and found it just as he had told them. And, they, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road. And, he, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had, they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is the very first time that Jesus receives public worship. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, this is the religious leaders who have been opposing him, he says, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Like, correct your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent the very stones would cry out. Like creation is groaning for this moment. And if the disciples and the multitudes stopped singing my praises, creation itself would sing praises because it's been longing for this moment. Verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now that's a juxtaposition that should shock us. That Jesus is coming in and the crowds, the multitudes are singing his praises. Glory to God. Praising Jesus. The promised king has arrived. And how would you receive all of those praises? It's like, Jenny, Jenny, Jeremy, Jeremy. Like, yes. Like, it kind of builds you up. And here Jesus is not elevated by those praises. Because he knows what's going on. And he sees in the midst of their praises Jerusalem. And even though they are praising him, he begins to weep over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Like he's weeping over Jerusalem because they don't know what day it is. What they've been longing for, what the prophets have foretold would come, is happening this very day. And they're going to reject him. There's two times in the Bible that it's recorded that Jesus weeps. What's the second one? Lazarus. Whoever said Lazarus? 10,000 bonus points to you. That's John chapter 11. Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. He's come four days too late to the memorial service. He's been buried. Jesus stands outside the tomb and he weeps. Now, the word that's used there is different than the word that's used here. The word that's used there is zachreo, which is getting watery eyes. Like There's like an internal weeping almost. Like Maybe there's some, some tears that run down his cheek. But it's not this complete lament and outward expression of sorrow. And, and what is Jesus crying about? Remember we talked about this several times ago when we said, you know, Jesus isn't crying at the tomb like, I can't believe Lazarus is dead. Like, Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus. He's crying because of the unbelief 
They don't know who he is. On the resurrection and the life, anyone who believes in me, yet they die, yet will they truly live. And he weeps, he gets teary-eyed, looking at their rejection of him. And here, the word weeps is a different word. It's kaleo, which is sorrow and grief. This is the outward lament and sorrow that is that you would have at a, a funeral procession. The word be grief and sorrow for us. And here he is not only just internally sad, but everyone around him can probably hear him crying and screaming with sorrow and pain in the depths of his soul. And what makes him so sad? Is it that all of this is about to happen to him? Is he really sad? He's looked at the city and says, oh my gosh, I just, I just can't go in there for the things that are going to happen to me. Is that what's making him sad? No. It's, it's the feeling like a parent has of a rebellious child who will not receive their help. It's the sorrow that we have for a friend who chooses not to receive the helps that they need. They won't receive the care that they need. They continue to make poor decision after poor decision, and they refuse to receive what's right in front of them. It's not a sorrow like, oh, if only this was possible for you. It's the sorrow that we feel when we say, this is possible for you. This is actually made for you. Receive it. And loved ones say, I want nothing to do with it. And the sorrow is heartbreak. It's a heartbreak. You just think about this. This is the Jesus. This is the God, right? The God of Abraham and Jacob. This is the God that called Moses, spoke to Moses, the one who, who met with David and promised a king to come. This Jesus has now arrived to his people. I spoke with Abraham. I spoke with Moses. I talked to David. I'm here. I'm here. And they want nothing to do with them. They don't know what has been prophesied, has arrived. And so Jesus weeps in sorrow that you had known on this day the things that make for peace. The things that make for peace. Like, we all want peace in our life. Do you know the things that make for peace? Like real peace. Oftentimes, if you go talk to, you know, a counselor or a friend, you say, man, I'm just, just weighed down by life. There's all this conflict in my life. They'll say, you know what you need to do? You need to get away. You need to go on vacation. You need to go to a peaceful place, maybe a beach, and you need to sit there, and you need to, like, stop thinking about your life. You need to stop thinking about all the things that are have, you're having a hard time with, and then just enjoy yourself. Find a moment of bliss. And that's probably the best the world can do is offer a moment of bliss. Jesus says, you don't know the things that make for peace. They actually create, generate the real peace, not just bliss, not just simply tranquility, but real peace. Peace in the Bible is more than just the absence of conflict. It comes from the rich Hebrew tradition of shalom. Shalom is not only the absence of warfare or conflict in your life, but it's also the presence of wholeness. So to have true shalom is also to not only have peace with neighbors, but everything that has been broken down or destroyed because of that conflict is being rebuilt. 
That's true peace, shalom. He says, do you, you don't even know the things that make for peace. So what makes for peace? That's what Jesus is here for. Jesus is on mission to do the very thing that only he can do, which makes for peace, true peace. And we're going to see that it's, it's peace that's vertical, our relationship with God. It's horizontal, our peace with others. And it's internal, even our peace within ourselves. Jesus Christ has come to do the very thing that makes for peace. Now, and it's not cheap peace. Because peace is truly an act of love, but it's also connected to justice. Even the world knows this. If you're going to have real peace, you have to have real justice. You seen this bumper sticker maybe on someone's car? It says, if you want peace, work for justice. If you don't have real justice, then you don't get to experience real peace. Have you seen the protests that have been out around the U.S. in the last five years? Oftentimes you'll see this sign. No justice, no peace. You can't have peace with God, with others, within yourself if justice isn't also present. John Stott, the the great Anglican theologian, he wrote this book, The Cross of Christ, and he writes this. He says, the incentive to peacemaking is love. Like what motivates for peace is love. The incentive to peacemaking is love, but it degenerates into appeasement whenever justice is ignored. You can appease somebody, but you can't bring them peace. To forgive and to ask for forgiveness are both costly exercises. All authentic Christian peacemaking exhibits the love and justice, and so the pain of the cross. Jesus is on a peacemaking mission. This is where it all comes together in Luke. The Prince of Peace, Luke 179 who comes to bring peace, the good news of peace to the world, Luke 2.14, is now arrived. But it can't exist without justice, which is the cross. Jesus Christ goes into Jerusalem on mission to make peace as he goes to hang on a cross. And if he never hangs on the cross and dies for our sins, our wrongs, nothing, nothing can ever be made right. And so it's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in Jerusalem that is the means of making peace. This is what the prophets foretold. This is what was fulfilled. This is Isaiah chapter 53. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Speaking of the Messiah to come, does this just sound like Jesus' work? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. If you want peace in your life, it's not possible to have apart from the work of Jesus Christ. That's why he came, to bring us shalom. The fullness of peace. This is what Ephesians picks up. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace. He is the peace that we long for. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace, speaking about Jews and Gentiles, relationships between people. And he might reconcile us both to God, vertical peace with God, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Near are the Jews, far off are the Gentiles. Paul picks it up and says, the one promise in Isaiah was Jesus Christ and his work in Jerusalem on the cross through the grave in resurrection was the peace that reconciles every human being who receives Jesus Christ back to their maker and with one another and will bring you the peace internally as well. This is what's picked up in Acts. This is Peter chapter 10. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Our series has been called Good News. This whole thing is, is good news of great joy for all people. It's true. Good news that Jesus Christ came to bring us peace. And that is good news for all people. But peace is only given through one. Good news for all, peace through one. Jesus the Christ, the Lord of all, Acts says. It's only Jesus Christ. And so he weeps on the outside of Jerusalem because his people did not know, did not recognize him, do not know the moment that they're in. And what makes for peace? Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And so he weeps and then foretells the consequence. There's a consequence of, of rejecting Jesus as the means of peace. Because we long for it. We're going to go try to get it somewhere. And so they reject Jesus as the means to peace. And they try to go get it by taking up the sword. And Jesus in that moment has a prophetic word for them. This is what's coming because you have, you've broken the covenant. You've rejected the Messiah. Chapter 19, verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. This is a picture of a siege that's going to happen. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you did not know what time is. This is why it's so important to be biblical students, to know what God is up to, to know what time of day it is, to know where we are in history. And so he holds his people accountable. Because you did not know the day of visitation, because you didn't know that, this is what's coming. There's an army, he says, that's going to lay siege to Jerusalem. It's going to surround this whole city, and it's going to tear it to the ground. Did that actually happen? Yes. How do you know a prophet is real? Do their words come true? That's the test of Deuteronomy 18. If the prophet speaks and what they speak comes true, you know they're a prophet of God. And within 40 years, the Jews had started up a rebellion. They rejected Jesus as their source of peace. They took up the sword. 
And they said, we will make peace for ourselves against Rome who occupies us. And in 66, they began a revolt against Rome that lasted until 70 A.D. And Titus came in in 70 A.D. And they circled Jerusalem with the Roman army and laid siege to it. No water, no resources coming into the city. People just died inside the city. And then they they came over the walls and they put everyone to death. And then they went from small town to small town, tearing it down. And they tore down the entire temple. They tore down every home, every part of the city, except for one wall, the western wall, which sits today. That's why they go and they they pray at the western wall. That was what was remaining. And so Jesus says, okay, if you're going to reject me as a source of peace, I know you're going to long for peace, but the way that you're going to try to get it will destroy your life. It's going to destroy your life. And I think that's just true. Is Jesus is the means of peace, is the, is the peacemaker. And if we reject him and try to go get peace on our own, we'll end up doing something that will end up destroying us. Jesus is the peace that we long for. This is what he gives to his disciples. This is John chapter 14. He's departing with his disciples. And he tells them, I I don't leave you as orphans. Like, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that he will be with you, so that you can experience my peace. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Which means there's a peace that you can have in the midst of an unsettled world. You don't have to have everything buttoned up to experience the peace of God. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. There's going to be hardships in your life, but I'm going to give you a peace that is outside this world. And that's really good. You know why? Because when this world go, be going crazy, you can have a peace about you. That's the peace that comes from Jesus. And so if we are to receive Jesus, the means of peace, how do we experience it? I want to get as practical as possible for you. There's a lot of ways to to slice this. But what are the ways in which we truly experience the peace of God? So I threw four of them up here. I think these four are are biblical principles of experiencing the peace that Jesus gives that's not of this world. There's two things that you receive and there's two things that you give. The first two are subjective, or are objective, meaning these are true outside of yourself, what God has done. The two are, other two are subjective, like what we can do to participate in and really experience the peace of God that he came to bring. The first is this, that we would receive God's forgiveness. There's no way to have peace with God or others or inside of us if the wrongs that we have done are not made right. If you want peace, you need justice. And something has to happen. Someone has to pay for all the things that I've done. I've done some real wrong in my life. I know the places that I've been. I know the things that I've done. I know what I've seen and participated. And there's wrong here. I've sinned against my creator. And so the very first thing is I have to receive God's forgiveness. Jesus' work on the cross was to forgive sinners like me and like you. And if you've never received Jesus' forgiveness, that's the starting point of peace. You won't be at peace with your maker unless you're forgiven of your sins. That's the first thing. 
You have to receive God's forgiveness. The second is this, that you would receive God's affection. I was trying to think, what is a good word for this? Is you have to receive God's evaluation of who you are, of who he says you are. Much of our inner peace or struggle with other people is to determine who we really are, to prove that we're beautiful or worthy or competent or valuable. If you're a young person in the room, this is probably one of the biggest struggles amongst your peers of this inner conflict of not knowing who they are, not comfortable in their own bodies. And you have to receive God's affection for you. God so loved the world, he went on the mission for peace. God loves you. What does he say? You're no longer called slaves. You're called friends of God. You're my friends. Not only want I call you friends, I'm going to call you heirs, co-heirs with Jesus. Jesus is your brother, and you're going to get an inheritance like your brother got. And I call you beloved. I call you sons and daughters. You belong to me. And much of our angst comes from us just not knowing who we really are. And to receive, it seems kind of awkward almost, to receive God's affection of like, I'm loved. I don't have to go get on some social media to prove that I'm beautiful or loved or significant or worthy. The creator of the universe says, you are beloved in my son, Jesus Christ. I fearfully and wonderfully made you to have these particularities in your life, to have these quirks about you, have this personality. It's not wrong. The Lord has made you. So the first one is you have to be first redeemed. Because unless we're forgiven, we're still living in our wrong. But then when we're forgiven, we have to embrace his affection of us. So we don't have to go pretend to be something that we're not or try to go get someone else's affection or someone else's approval. We live in the affection and love of Jesus Christ. And then our response, this is the subjective piece of how we experience it, is that we give God your life and we give God our attention. Now, this is interesting. Someone pointed this out. If it was, I don't know who it was. If it was you, I want to give you credit. I don't know. Someone told me that, you know, the first two really in this, there's two postures in which Jesus is Savior. The second two is that Jesus is Lord. Lord means master, the one who directs your life. And so these, the first two are objectively true. The second two are subjectively true as we make Jesus the Lord of our life. We follow his leading. And so we surrender our life. We, he gets to call the shots. If he calls us to go seek forgiveness, we go seek for forgiveness. If he, if he calls us to be peacemakers as he does, then we go be peacemakers. If he calls us to, to bite our tongues, to bless our enemies, to pray for our enemies, what do we do? Those things, why? Because we surrendered our life to him. And we surrender our future to him of what tomorrow brings. Much of our restlessness is we don't know what tomorrow brings. Who knows what tomorrow brings? Jesus. I mean, he foretold the destruction of Israel. Who knows the future? Jesus. Who knew the whole plan of God and executed it perfectly? Jesus. Who could you possibly trust? For your future. Jesus. Jesus knows it. He knows what's in your day tomorrow. You don't. And so part of our restlessness 
is that we don't know what tomorrow brings. Imagine the peace that comes on you when you say, I've surrendered my life, and Lord, you know my tomorrow, and whatever tomorrow brings, I know you'll still be my Lord. And so there's enough grace for today. There's enough troubles for today. And so I rest in Jesus Christ because I've surrendered my life. I don't have to control my future. Jesus does. It's a wonderful thing. The last one is to give your attention to God. Now, I want to spend just one extra moment on this one. This is the daily practice of keeping your mind on the Lord. Many of us have our attention gripped by so many other things that are actually panic-inducing, anxiety-inducing things when instead we should put our minds and its attention on the thing that actually brings peace. This comes from the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Paul is speaking to the church in Philippi. And he speaks to them about what it is that we are to practice in our Christianity. Chapter 4, sorry. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Are you anxious about anything? Do you lack peace in some area of your life? Take that and give it to the Lord. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Scott talked about that today. With worship of gratitude, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. That you would have an attention, an attentive prayer life where you're giving him all of your anxiety and your thanksgiving. And the peace of God, Paul says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you turn your mind to the Lord and say, this is what I'm anxious about. This is what I'm thankful for. You have my full attention. And the peace of God, which is not of this world, will guard your hearts and your mind. You actually get to experience the peace of God. He says, finally, brothers, whatever, this is, give me your attention, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let me ask you, what did you think about this week? What did you watch this week? What did you give your attention to this week? Was it true, honorable, just? Pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise? Would you want to share with everybody in this room the things that you put your mind to this week? You see, if we put our mind towards these things, Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you want to experience the peace of God, there's two things to receive and two things to give. To receive his forgiveness, receive his affection, to give him your life, and to give him your attention. And as Isaiah promised, he keeps him and her in perfect peace. In perfect peace. No matter what they're going through, he keeps them in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. So what did Jesus Christ come to accomplish was peace. Peace with humanity and God, with humanity and one another, and to bring us the peace inside that, we can, that we're longing for.
is to be made right with our maker, made right with others, to be made right within. And that's when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And we're going to explore the work of Jesus Christ the last week where he comes on mission to bring the world its peace. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are a God who would send your son on a mission of restoration. That you would restore our relationship with our maker. That you would restore us to one another and that you would restore us from within. Father, our world is longing for peace. I pray that you would take a community of believers here in Erie and lead us out of this church today to go be the church of Jesus Christ, to be peacemakers. May we go share with a world in conflict how peace is made. May we share the Prince of Peace with our coworkers and friends, our family members. Father, I pray for every man and woman in this room who is not experiencing the peace of God in their life. I, I pray that they would receive your forgiveness and your affection and then give you their life, surrender their life to you. And they would give you their attention this week. And then, Lord, let us live free. It's so good to live free in the peace of Christ that has been purchased for us. So, Lord, we ask that you would do this in the name of your beloved Son, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.